0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate
1: portfolio. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen to episode 129 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill, joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by Daniel Foch. And today on the podcast, we are gonna be talking about Aviation and the Art of Landing a Plane Well, I mean,
0: not exactly We're talking about metaphorical planes And hard landings and soft landings And we just happen to have a great aviation metaphor Because our episodes are written by a
1: poet By the name of Nick Hill Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's correct. We are going to be talking about hard landings and soft landings, which in economic talk simply means how the economy is going to react to monetary policy. Uh, And you tie it to a great aviation metaphor here.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll quickly cover after this quote, uh, the difference between monetary and fiscal policy. But uh, as Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve recently said, we are navigating the stars under cloudy skies. So that led us to explore what he meant by
1: that. Are we really flying half blind right now? So, I mean, that uh, from Jerome Powell, that's also a little bit of poetry right there. So it looks like I'm not the only one here. It was very poetic, yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what a soft landing is, what a hard landing is. We're going to re-examine the role of the central bank and then, of course, have a theoretical conversation probably at the end of the episode about what a potential hard landing and soft landing could look like in Canadian real estate.
0: Yeah. So, monetary policy, just to, to back up between monetary versus fiscal policy, because these are really the only two ways that money and the government can interact with the economy. Monetary policy addresses interest rates and the supply of money in circulation and is generally managed by a central bank who is detached from the government and the government manages fiscal policy, which addresses taxation and government spending and is generally determined by government legislation. So, Nick... Now that we have those two definitions that I stole from you and your righteous ability to the dictionaries, what is a soft landing?
1: (laughs) Well, didn't we have Dan finishing for a while there too?
0: Yeah, yeah, true. I can't, the the listener who came up with that, I gotta give him a shout out again here. Bringing it back, baby. You guys' name.
1: Total beauty. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, a soft landing. It's a cyclical slowdown in economic growth that avoids a recession. A soft landing is the goal of a central bank when it seeks, seeks to raise interest rates just enough to stop an economy from overheating and experiencing high inflation without causing a severe downturn. A soft landing may also refer to a gradual, relatively painless slowdown in a particular industry or economic sector. Now, there's an opposite here. So, Dan, what is a hard landing? I mean, I think some people call hard landings crashes,
0: usually when you <laughs> land a little too hard. Just a light, it a light crash. A, and a crash. Uh, so a hard landing refers to a marked economic slowdown or downturn following a period of rapid growth. The term hard landing comes from aviation, where it refers to the kinds of high speed landing that, while not an actual crash, is a source of stress as well as potential damage and in- injury. So they're calling it a crash without calling it a crash, I suppose. Um, It's funny, too, because headwinds and tailwinds are also aviation metaphors. <laughs> so I guess there's a lot of pilots coming up with the uh, stock trading terminology <laughs> and uh, whatever. Um, So the metaphor is used for high flying economies that run into a, a sudden sharp check in their growth, such as monetary policy intervention meant to curb inflation, which is what we're seeing right now. Economies that experience a hard landing
1: often slip into a stagnant period or even a recession. Yeah, exactly. So again, a hard landing is characterized by a rapid decline in the economy, higher rates of unemployment, and reduced economic activity overall. Yeah. And so I think
0: a lot of people want to think about when they read this headline or when they hear us talking about soft landing or crashes or whatever, it's just purely house prices or real estate asset values. But we're talking about the entire economy here. When we, I will differentiate a little bit later about like, you know, did we see a crash or will we see a slow grind down in prices um, and which corresponds to a hard versus soft landing. But a soft landing can be achieved when the central bank gradually increases interest rates helping stabilize the economy and avoid
1: a recession or high unemployment. Yeah, exactly. So, Dan, let's go back and use that aviation metaphor, right? We're going to be a couple of pilots ourselves here and, and just really explore it. So I want you to picture the economy as a huge plane, like a 747,
0: well, actually, the French manufactured Airbus A380 800 is
1: technically the largest passenger aircraft. So let's use that. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll use the Airbus then. So I want everyone to consider the Airbus A380 800 as the economy. The pilots, who probably came up with the terminology we're using, are the central bankers trying to navigate that Airbus 380. The eight hundred and thirty five passengers on board represent the entire population of Canada, the economy, or whatever country you're listening to this from. Now there's a plane descending because it's time to land, but it plans change midair and we need to land ASAP. The engines start to overheat and those engines are inflation. So we've got to land this plane. And now I also want you to picture Samuel L. Jackson on this flight yelling at everyone. It's time to land. And that represents the panic and consumer sentiment. Wait, why is Samuel L. Jackson on this plane? <laughs> Man, come on. Snakes in a plane. I, I thought it was. I thought it was filling. And and of course, he's there to instill the bad sentiment by by angrily yelling at everybody.
0: Man, I I have actually seen that movie and it's excellent. <laughs> I watched it in a the theater and at the Snakes on a Plane moment in the time, it was just uh everyone was laughing so hard. Um anyway, that was a long time ago actually because I remember seeing it after and it might have been like one of those Ones that you download that was recorded in a theater because there was laughter in it as well. Yeah. So to recap, Airbus is the air in the economy. Overheating engines. I don't like the overheating engines part because I like uh, the Rolls Royce stock and I think that Airbus uses (laughs) Rolls Royce engines. So I don't like this part. Overheating engines causing an unplanned landing are inflation and Samuel Jackson is yelling at everyone and turning consumer sentiment back okay so we've got this clear picture painted now it's time to land you couldn't use like a
1: modern day example like the idris alba uh tv show right you know what even my grandma has told me to watch that show but i just good show we got too much real estate stuff going on i I don't have time to watch you know tv I, i i revert back to sam jackson snakes in a plane so a soft landing is obviously harder to execute especially under duress but let's assume. These pilots are pros and they're able to pull off an unplanned landing on some random tarmac that they find. Now, again, this may not be a traditional airstrip, but let's say it's like a a big road, a highway or a parking lot or or something like that for a little dramatic effect. The plane and passengers manage to land. It may have been a bit of a bumpy ride. There may have been a bit of panic and consumer sentiment, but nothing's broken. So the plane lands, and on a graph or a chart, imagine this line slowly and gradually decreasing. On the other hand, we have a hard
0: landing. You know, there's another great uh, flight movie that uh, I think is, yeah, Snoop Dogg's Soul Plane. (laughs) (laughs) Great film. Anyway, on the other hand, we have a hard landing.
1: This is when the pilots, the central banks, uh, need to land the plane, but there's no airport in sight. Yeah, and let's not forget in this example as well, Samuel L. Jackson is still there screaming in the background about snakes and, you know, which likely doesn't help anybody. Maybe it's Snoop Dogg in this
0: case because we're on the Soul Plane now. (laughs) Um, So the pilots need to land. There's no great options. They do the best they can. And let's say a grass field, but that grass field could be dangerous. It could have rained that day and the ground's too soft and the plane wheels could get stuck, breaking the axle, causing damage. Uh, Remember that the airplane is the economy. So hard landing means things break. Pain is felt. Um, And to imagine this graph or
1: chart, uh, the picture is the line perhaps falling off of a cliff. Now, there's a fine line between the two and how raising interest rates will impact, impact the economy. Central banks do not want hard landings as one. They don't sound fun in any way, but they could do some serious and, and possibly long term damage and have some serious repercussions to the economy. Whereas a soft landing avoids a recession entirely, but still requires the economy to slow and weaken to the point where unemployment rate moves up just enough. So basically
0: the central bank tries to achieve sub potential economic growth, so weak uh so weak enough growth that cools inflation, but it still results in some increase in the unemployment rate. Okay, so we are done with the Airbus Samuel Jackson, then the snakes on a plane metaphor. Maybe maybe we're actually now what's that other movie where the the girls are in the forest. They were they were in a plane crash, too. Now we're in the recession, I suppose. We're all stuck in a forest together, living in a cabin. Wow, that's a good one. I should have actually, kept that metaphor no, that's, it, it, That one's too dark,
1: actually, because I think they resort <laughs> to cannibalism in that, that TV we're show. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Yeah. But the, yes, okay, the, you know, no more Samuel Jackson. But I, I bet you when most other economists use that metaphor, Samuel Jackson is not present in their aviation metaphor with the hard landing and soft landing.
0: Fair. Yeah, that's true. So let's talk about what happens during the navigation. Let's let's look at the role of the central bank. In in our case. The Bank of Canada, I know you mentioned Jerome Powell before, but in Canada, we listen to a guy by the name of Tiff Macklem, which reminds me, we are working on our Merry Tiffmas Christmas letters. Okay, we, we were hoping
1: there would be a gift for Christmas, but certainly not looking that we way. We got to get those out. Um, okay. So just a reminder before Dan goes into what the central bank is doing, let's just have a quick reminder of what they do. Uh, they're an independent national authority that conducts monetary policy regulates banks, and provides financial services, including economic research. We talk about a lot of the research that our central bank puts out on this show. And as Dan mentioned, they are in charge of monetary policy where the government is in charge of fiscal policy. Its goals are to stabilize Canada's currency, keep unemployment low, and prevent inflation. So one of the main ways of
0: controlling the economy and taming inflation is interest rates. Specifically, as we've seen recently... Increasing interest rates or hiking them. We've discussed many times how the impact of rate hikes generally trickles through the economy, gradually putting
1: downward pressure on prices over time. And again, we've talked about this. It takes 12 months for an interest rate hike to work its way through the economy. And interest rate sensitive sectors such as housing that's tied to it through mortgage rates and all types of lending, corporate investment, these are historically the first to feel the pinch. So then weakening demand flows, impacting new orders,
0: growth, and corporate earnings. Remember the HOPE acronym that we've mentioned a number of times on the show that comes
1: from Cantro on Twitter. Exactly right, Then That's housing, orders, profits, employments. Now, you know this better than most. Can you just walk us through this again?
0: Sure, so interest rates don't impact the entire economy all at once. They tend to strike different segments of the economy one after another, rolling across them with a lag. So housing is the first to slow down, and we saw this in Canada in Q1 of 2022, the first rate hike dropped housing. We actually saw the biggest uh 12-month drop in house prices we've ever seen in Canadian history from February 2022 to February 2023. And then what, and, and the reason for that is because housing is the most credit responsive product that consumers consume, right? People use mortgages to buy credit. And so as soon as the cost of mortgages goes up, the buying power of the house goes down. After that, we see new orders start to slow. And new orders means, and that's the O for orders in the acronym, People are starting to see contraction in their household income, or, or sorry, household wealth, and so they start start spending less money, ordering less things, you know, ordering less Uber Eats, ordering less lumber to build decks, ordering less vacations, whatever it is. And then, as a result, you start to see company profits, and this is kind of really where we're just getting to in this reactionary cycle, I suppose. Company profits start to decline, and now we're starting to see more and more decreases in. The earnings reports from from businesses, you know, all but like seven, I think seven companies are propping up the indexes right now. <laughs> and then finally, as a result of that, companies who have less profit, they can't hire as many people. And then some cases they have to fire people. And so employment, the E of hope starts to be impacted. And you can remember that sequence using the acronym HOPE, Housing Orders, Profits, Employment which we've talked about in a few other episodes. From here, economic slowdowns are typically seen in employment data with reduced job openings, increased layoffs, and higher unemployment rates. And you can see this a lot in Canada. It hasn't really showed up exceptionally well in the data, but it does take time again. But you're seeing videos and photos of huge lineups, like 500, 600 people lining up for two jobs in in a lot of the entry-level employment so this process can take months or even years to complete. And given the, the lag of impact, the Bank of Canada will typically conclude its tightening and pivot before the weight of its actions fully manifest. Or in some cases, they can overshoot, which is a very easy way to have a, uh, a hard landing is miss the runway completely <laughs> yeah. and,
1: uh, and that'll cause more damage. Yeah, no, well said, Dan. So I want to go back. You said when the Bank of Canada will typically conclude its tightening and pivot before the the weight of its actions is fully manifest. So this is probably a good time to maybe introduce or reintroduce for anyone that's not familiar um, quantitative tightening and quantitative easing before we keep going here. So uh, these are the two definitions, QE and QT, and this is taken directly from our central bank's website. So I'm going to do quantitative easing here. How quantitative easing affects inflation. The goal of our monetary policy is always to reach our inflation target. We use the QE to counter the risk of deflation, a dangerous decline in prices that harms everyone. QE helps stabilize the economy by making it easier for Canadians to borrow money and for companies to stay in business, invest and create jobs. Under quantitative easing, a central bank buys government bonds buying government bonds raises their price and lowers their return the rate of interest they pay to bondholders this rate of return is also known as the bonds yield government bonds and their yields have big influence on other borrowing rates lower yields make it cheaper to borrow money so quantitative easing encourages households and businesses to borrow spend and invest So, for example, we can buy a five-year government bond, which will lower their yield. This will be reflected in the lower interest rates on five-year fixed mortgages, making it cheaper to borrow and to buy a house. Or we can go back to long-term government bonds, which mature in 10 years or more. In this way, we can make it cheaper for businesses to borrow and grow through long-term investments. Now, Dan, that was quantitative easing. Tell me about quantitative tightening, otherwise known as QT. And I gave you this one because you're a little cutie. Oh, thank you. (laughs) got really serious there. I figured we lightened it up a little bit.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, and the other way this is used as a policy tool is to take money in and out of the economy, right? So you'll hear a lot about money supply. Um, and if you see a contraction, the government or the sort of the central banks can use these tools to get money out of the economy when there's too much money, which is causing excess demand for stuff. So money can be too cheap, but there can also be too much of it. And they're kind of the same thing because as money becomes less cheap, people tend to go and save, right? And so it's, it's all about incentivizing saving. When interest rates are high, like right now, when was the last time? I don't think in our entire lifetime we've heard of people wanting to put money into GICs. And now every, all everybody's talking about is putting money into GICs. That's yeah, crazy. And that's, so that's money that's coming out of the economy and going to sit for a period of time. Um, money gets a timeout too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so quantitative tightening, whereas QE aims to stimulate the economy, the goal of QT is to help pull back that extraordinary support by reversing those purchases or taking money out of the economy. So to that end, QT complements our primary policy tool, the policy interest rate, which influences short-term borrowing costs. QT removes a source of downward pressure on interest rates, which isn't needed when the economy is doing well. This helps bring demand and supply back to the balance of inflation and inflation back to the bank's 2% target. When a central bank lets its government bonds mature and roll off the balance sheet or whether it actively sells them under QT the central bank is no longer adding to the demand for bonds as a result bonds become cheaper and their yields increase so the government isn't buying the things that impact the rates because other interest rates in the economy are influenced by government bond yields QT makes borrowing more expensive Households and businesses therefore borrow and spend less, which eases demand in the economy, helping to soften inflation pressure. So it makes people want to borrow less money, so they're not borrowing money to go buy houses or Lambos or lumber for decks, um, but it also makes it more compelling to save. And so people take money and go put it into savings. In that same way that QE sends a signal to the public that the bank's intention is to keep the policy interest rate low for an extended period, QT indicates that interest rates
1: are likely going to have to rise. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Now let's pause quickly and recap. We now have gone over what a soft landing and a hard landing is. We know that the French manufactured Airbus A380-800 is technically the largest passenger aircraft. So thank you for that, Dan. Uh, We know what the role of a central bank is and how interest rates essentially control everything. We touched on the HOPE acronym and how we can follow those trends to see where we are in an economic cycle and possibly a recession. And we have now touched on QE and QT.
0: I'd like to move on to, I guess, looking at what a recession is. And then we'll chat about that and finish things off with some great insights from a senior economist from BMO. So, um, I think starting with looking at recessions because I think it's the writing's on the wall here. A lot of people are going to wait to he, to see another quarter of negative GDP growth, but we just saw. Uh, I think it was um, July numbers, is what because we get it a month or a couple months late mm-hmm. that the economy was flat in July. Um, and so, anyway, I'll get to that because there's some other data that's important, especially GDP per capita in Canada. But Canada has experienced a, a total of five recessions since 1970 and 12 since 1929. Recessions usually last between three to nine months. The 08-09 recession lasted seven months. All recessions in Canada since 1970 occurred at the same time as the economy of the United States re- experienced a recession, showing that two economies are highly synchronized.
1: Yeah, that old, that old joke of, you know, um, the US sneezes and Canada catches a cold. That's that's real. That happens. Yeah.
0: So let's, let's go through the Canadian re- recession since 1929. Uh, I think that is 29, I guess they used because that was after the Great Depression, which was a, a big, bad one. So um, anyway, we'll start with, so we're going backwards. So COVID, February, 2020 to April, 2020. Very quick one. October, 2008 to May, 2009. The 1990s, which I often have said on this show, and we covered in that the episode that you're going to mention in, in a couple of minutes, Nick, um, very similar setup to present day Um the economy peaked in March of 1990
1: and it troughed or bottomed in May of 1992. Mm -hmm. So that's a very long recession. Yeah, you're right, Dan. And then if you go back in time another decade, we see the uh, peak in June 1981 and the trough in October of 1982. And that actually is a good example of when rates were hiked
0: extremely high. That was the 18 to 21 percent interest rate um, period of time. And uh And, but the, the recession was a lot shorter likely because the rate hiking cycle was so much more aggressive. So the next one um, prior to that was October,
1: 1974 peak to March, 1975 trough going back again. We start in March, 1960 at the peak and finish off in March of 1961. So one full year there, and that's the trough in uh, March of 61. The next was uh, March 1957
0: to January 1958, uh, so a little less than a year. Wow,
1: the fifties are, are had I had a tough year. Eh? July back to back, yeah, yeah. July 1958. but they weren't as
0: bad of a recession. No, so they mean, were. Look at them; yeah, they were
1: short. They were very short. But not, so 1953 to economy. 1954 was the one before that, and then there's still another one in the fifties. Yeah,
0: April 1951 to December 1951. So that didn't even last.
1: Like that was that was. Three quarters. Yeah. A couple months, uh, sorry, a couple of years uh, before that, we're in the 40s, August 1947 to March 1948. And then November 1937 to June of 1938. And of course, the first recession that kicked it all off, got all the fun, started April 1929. To February nineteen thirty three, man, that was a long one. Dan, that would that would have been tough back then.
0: That and that, well, that's the Great Depression, yeah, right? Yeah. So, um, te- technically, the Great Depression was a decade, right? Yeah. So nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty nine, but that was just the period of time in which um, the the recession, like the actual GDP decline, took place. So it, it took one hundred twenty months. The global GDP decline during that period of time was. decrease in GDP. Yeah. Get this peak global unemployment, 24.9% in 1933. Yeah. He's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that was, I mean, the global financial crisis is often compared to it, but I I don't think it was like what people describe the
1: the depression to be. Uh, Well, again, that is a recession versus depression, which which we'll get to. So going through these, um, what was this, 12 uh, recessions here, Dan, which was a lot of fun. I'm happy we get to do this kind of stuff together. (laughs) Um, The data becomes clear that a recession usually lasts for less than one year. The risk of a recession is that it can last for a longer period of time, and that economic decline can be very great, in which case it can be called a depression. So that's when we get to recession into depression, though there are no hard or fast rules that define what constitutes a depression. It can be characterized by a long period of time with mass unemployment, falling prices, low incomes, and a persistent lack of confidence in the future of the economy. What do we call that nowadays? That is consumer sentiment. So as Dan said, you know, the great depression, we have it from 1929, uh, Peaking to the trough in 1933, but it actually went for a full decade from 29 to 1939, and it was the worst economic downturn in history.
0: And we went through a full, exhaustive unpacking of these—not the—not the, not the um, Great Depression, but I think we did 1989. Did we do 81, I think, I think 89 we started in the,
1: in the 08. 70s, or did we just do the? I think we did Yeah, you're right. The 80s all the way to. Uh, the, the present, the present day. day and how, and so that was, I think it
0: was our f- second episode technically as yeah. the first episode was like a, a teaser, but uh, it was called how Canadian real estate performs mm-hmm. in a rising rate environment. So check that out. And so there's a couple of things I wanted to add to before we jump into the BMO piece here. You know, I mentioned earlier, is it a hard landing on the economy or on house prices? Right. And I think that people listening to this show want to know, right? Because they want to know, okay, well, our price is going to crash I guess, crash again because they, I I would call what happened, like, you know, whenever I mention um, house prices coming down, people are always arguing with me like, oh, it's never going to crash. I'm like, first of all, I didn't say it was going to crash, but it already did last year. Like Mm -hmm. it was literally the biggest drop we've ever seen in house prices in Canadian history, I think, or on record. So since we started recording house prices, um, I think they already had their hard landing. And, um, and I think that. What happens during a recession? We've seen in other iterations, 89 it would be a great example. When you're in the recessionary period, you see a longer, slower decrease or sideways market. I mean, when you adjust it for inflation, it typically is, is a downward market, but it appears sideways on nominal prices. Prices don't change that all that much. Um, and I think there could be a little bit more downside if we see unemployment continue to rise and rates don't come down. Um, so. I guess the, the big question is, or I guess we'll maybe we'll figure out um, how to finish off here with some wise words from somebody smarter than us. But, um, but, but before I jump to that, I want to also mention GDP per capita. This comes from Ben Rabadu on Twitter. It says, Canadians are getting poorer, setting aside the pandemic. Real GDP per capita. Uh, is now contracting at the fastest rate since the financial crisis. Data includes advanced estimates for August. So, and it's literally just um, GDP per capita falling off, off of a cliff. I think at at the point where, and that's the change in real GDP per capita. Mm-hmm. And I think Mike, Mike Moffat also put out something, or I know it was actually Macau Scooterland on uh, Twitter that put something out that GDP per capita hasn't changed since 2016, I believe. So Canadians are making... And that's, that's not adjusted for inflation. So Canadians are making per capita per person uh, as little money as we did in 2016. So our economy isn't growing. A lot of that has to do with massive population growth, but anyway, we can get to that. So GDP is growing because our, our, or it, it was growing because our economy was growing. The number of people in our economy was growing, but GDP per capita was not. Yeah. The pie was getting bigger, but you were cutting it
1: up more times.
0: Let's get to this article here. Sink or swim for the Canadian economy.
1: Yeah, so this is by uh, Robert Kavich, Senior Economist and Director of Economics at a little known bank, BMO. Start us off here, Dan.
0: The struggle is starting to look real in the Canadian economy and the headwinds might only be getting stiffer. Canadian real GDP was flat in July and a modest 0.1% initial read in August leaves growth for Q3 barely in positive territory. Over the last six months, real GDP is effectively unchanged which starts to look pretty rough when considering the population is exploding at a 3% per year run rate. While we'd love to insert some rays of optimism here, the challenge is that the recent action in the bond market is not cooperating, pushing borrowing rates even higher, and the typical 12 to 18 month lag in monetary policy suggesting that the most aggressive phase of the tightening cycle last summer is about to fully bite. As such, we continue to forecast very
1: little real growth between now and next spring. There are even signs that Canada's rock-solid labor market is softening this week, although from extremely tight levels. While the payrolls report a bit of old news, the latest covers were from July, it provides important details on employment, job vacancies, and wages. Employment continues to run at a solid play pace, up 2.5% year-over-year, year, but job vacancies are now plunging down a full 5.8% in July alone. That's down 43,000 jobs and 28% in the past year with a real number of 274,000. So recall that uh, Canada has more than 1 million job vacancies and at the peak in early 22, um More effectively, there was one job opening for every unemployed person. So there's there's work and there's people. They're just not matching up.
0: That leaves the job vacancy rate at 3.9% compared to the 5.7% high set last spring. While that's above pre-pandemic levels with a low 3% range, the excess demand is fading fast. Still, there's little evidence that wage growth is cooling, but wages are a slow-moving train that can take time to change direction once they get going. Think of the ongoing negotiations and work stoppages now as as contracts come to renewal, following three years of inflation and job market tightness that didn't exist when those were initially inked. That said, given plunging vacancies and unemployment rate that, while still low at 5.5%, is up zero point six base or points zero point six points from the cycle low. Uh, wage pressure should ease through twenty twenty four. So either wages aren't going to are going to stop growing. They're forecasting, or um, potentially employment will, unemployment will
1: rise. Yeah, exactly, Dan. And let's not forget the fact that Canada's population surged by almost one point two million people in the year through July first. By far the largest absolute increase on record. In percentage terms, that 3% year-over-year gain matches the largest yearly increase since the 1950s post-war boom. It's very hard to bring down an economy in aggregate when the size of the population is growing this quickly. But at the individual or household level, things appear to be getting even tougher. In a per capita terms, Canada's real GDP is now on track to be more than 2% .2 year-over-year in Q3, a magnitude of decline typically only seen during a recession. The difference this time is that it's the denominator that is surging. Since the end of 2016, Canada's real GDP per capita output is now little changed compared to a sturdy 1.7% annualized growth that we see with our neighbors down south in the United States clearly
0: there are longer term demographic benefits from robust immigration. And we just mentioned that, I think on our, I guess it'll be our last episode about how the government is trying to offset an aging population by immigrating a younger population. And we are one of the few places on earth that will have the benefit of being able to actually turn our population pyramid back into a population
1: pyramid. Instead of the seems. population hourglass that we, that we have. Right. right.
0: Now. Yeah. So especially if the flows are concentrated in much needed skilled areas of the job market, the report says. And I might add my own opinion here that I would love to see that be tailored to the skilled trades as outlined in Ontario's um, Affordable Housing Task Force report so that we can start easing some pressure on the housing crisis. But the rate of the flow matters given the supply of housing, healthcare and services and other necessary infrastructure can't possibly respond fast enough to the current pace. That combined with the fact that more than half of net inflows over the past year a massive 700,000 people were non-permanent residents a large portion of international students suggests that the current calibration leaves the near-term balance of the population boom in inflationary territory before we eventually see the longer-term disinflationary impact or even a deflationary impact like what we're seeing in China right now and so once you finish this report here the last paragraph will maybe also introduce the the um, concept of um stagflation which is a combination of um, inflation
1: and recession basically so to finish off the report here from bmo for the bank it's complicated this remains a tough spot where any signs of slowing are being countered by the inflationary impulse of a torrid population growth still stubborn core metrics and lags between turning points in the job market and wage growth it all suggests that the bank will keep leaning on the economy and inflation with the tightening that has already been put in place, while downside pressures continue to build. So,
0: I guess the the last piece that we can mention here, I'll, maybe I'll mention um, stagflation, and then also talking about the impacts of recession. I think we're going to do this maybe our next our next episode. Um, or one of our next episodes, um, about how Desjardins put out a report about a month ago, early, early September, um, on how low house prices can go in Canada. And it states that even a severe recession likely won't make housing affordable. And that was by Jimmy Jean, chief economist and strategist and Mark Desormeaux, principal economist from, uh, from Desjardins. And, and so we'll cover that at some point in the next couple of episodes but but basically I think we need to assess the chances of a, a soft landing versus a hard landing um and then you can mention here maybe how to shelter yourself from a recession regardless of the outcome and then I'll I'll go over the stagflation because I I think that
1: that might actually be a, a harder outcome to deal with than pure recession. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, look, there's we talk about this a lot, right? It's it's ignoring the the noise overall. So it's it's about building up your emergency fund right doing things like paying off high interest debt do what you can to live in your means this is what we see that like this is this stuff works right we see quantitative easing and quantitative tightening well that's because people react to these things so react accordingly right start living within your means spend less diversify some of your investments um invest for the long term knowing the fact that these recessions aren't going to be the rest of your life even though right now it might feel like certain people are treading a little bit of water and I know it's hard out there Um, but you know think how we can get out of this how can I capitalize on this two three five years from now and be honest with yourself about your risk tolerance right um you know we talk about this a lot as well knowing yourself not only knowing your client but knowing yourself um so maybe it's start, time to start play playing a little bit of defense and look there's nothing wrong with selling a house there's nothing wrong with selling an investment there's nothing even wrong with taking a loss okay it all comes back around and um you know just try to make it out of this and get through get through it and, and come out stronger and there's a lot of money to be made and a lot of reinvention that happens in times like this so Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, about stagflation, um, and then we'll we'll start to wrap it up here.
0: Yeah, so I'll. I'm just going to briefly um, define stagflation. I'm going to talk about the most famous period of stagflation, um, and and when I read the key takeaways from that period, um, it's going to be have some eerie similarities to some of the themes we're seeing today. And so, I would just I'm not going to draw any conclusions for you, but I think that they should be easy to draw. So we don't, we don't draw stag- conclusions on this show. We just present data. <laughs> I do tend to accidentally draw conclusions every now and then, but uh, but hopefully they're, they're not uh, completely wrong. Anyway, um, stagflation is a simultaneous appearance in an economy of slow growth, high unemployment, and rising prices. Uh, once thought by economists to be impossible, stagflation has occurred repeatedly in the developed world since the 1970s. Policy solutions for slow growth tend to worsen inflation and vice versa. And so we're seeing that... Um, with the interest rates worsening inflation, right? Um, the stagflation in the 1970s was a combination of slow growth and rapidly rising prices. Challenged by It was challenging prior assumptions when people thought this was impossible, leading economists to examine the causes and policies that would end a stagnant period. So the key takeaways um, from investopedia.com, stagflation in the 1970s combined high inflation with uneven economic growth. Now, these are the themes that I think you might see some similarities with today. High budget deficits, lower interest rates, the oil embargo, and the collapse of managed currency rates contributed to stagflation. Under Federal Reserve Board Chair Paul Volcker, Volker, who is famous for hiking like crazy, and this is how you ended up um, with some of those massive... Um, rates that we were seeing, the prime lending rate was above 21% <laughs> to reduce inflation. Crazy. Inflationary, uh, inflationary pressures eased as oil prices and union employment, remember union employment, we're seeing all this stuff happening with the UAW in the US right now, limiting the growth of costs and wages. So again, I hope we don't end up there, but I mean, t- I think we are almost technically technically in a period of stagflation minus the employ- um, unemployment rising, but basically we have- inflation and recession at the same time. Um, ideally, and I think inevitably it leads to, uh, demand destruction basically where, you know, people can't consume the expensive things anymore. The, the inflation destroys the demand for those things, uh, gas, uh, or or fuel prices being probably the leading one. Um, and then eventually things come back down, but it can take a long time. So, um, When you want to think about... Oh, and also the Bank of Canada calculations have this um, chart. Somebody posted on Twitter. um, I think it was Geoeconomic on Twitter. It says probability of stagflation. and It's basically a hockey stick graph. Um, So I would probably pay attention to that one as well. Hockey sticking Um, all the way up to... What was that? Over 30%, which is uh, not... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so we we explained to you um, prior how real estate um, could interact with recessionary environment. The next question, if we are seeing stagflationary environment is, is owning real estate a good inflation hedge? And we covered that pretty thoroughly in episode 119. And I mean, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. There's risk associated with owning real estate in a recession, and there's benefit associated with owning real estate against inflation. And so whichever whichever force you feel is going to be more powerful is probably the
1: way you should allocate your thesis. Yeah, um, exactly. Or your capital. Exactly. And I think it comes down to a few things. You know, it's always a good time to buy a good deal. Right. It's always a bad time to buy a bad deal. Recession, depression, stagflation, inflation. Again, focus on what you can control. And for more information, go back and check out some of those other episodes. We said episode two, we did a full exhaustive look at each recession, how it affected home prices, uh, job numbers and everything. And then go back and check out episode 119 is owning real estate, the best inflation hedge. And while you're at it, check out a few other episodes comment like subscribe leave us a review all that good stuff um anything else smash that like
0: button yeah smash that like button and click all the links in the show notes because there's some fun stuff there um we got a newsletter on patter for those i'll actually post the charts from this episode um the probability of stagflation as well as the real GDP per capita um ones i might actually also post the um the desjardins report as well so that people can have it ahead of the upcoming episode um, and then also check out real estate merch and real estate meetups.ca. Um, yeah. We got
1: like, we'd love to see a meetup meetup coming in 10 days, I guess, October, October 10th, nine days, baby. And we got, uh we got like, I'm, um, I think pushing 1200 people across the country now. So we're back in growth mode. The podcast has been growing. We just had our biggest month ever. So thank you all so much for the continued and amazing support. Go tell your friends, help people out, come out to a meetup. Let's uh let's keep growing together. And um you know, maybe we'll be on that flight next time with uh, Sam Jash and Snoop the Snakes Dog? and Snoop Dogg. I'm going on Snoop Dogg's plane. <laughs> Sounds more chill on Snoop Dogg's plane. Um, I'm not getting on any plane
0: that uh, Samuel
1: Jackson gets on. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you got a ton of value out of today's episode. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037.
0: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.